Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. Today's show is sponsored by Mikasa Home Inspections, Calgary's top-rated home inspection company. Mikasa understands that the highest quality of service is essential, so make sure to call Mikasa before your next real estate deal. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, on today's show, I had the pleasure of speaking with Chris Fennymore. Chris was on the show before. I consider Chris to be a Calgary condo expert. On today's show, we do a recap of 2022 and some predictions for the 2023 condo market. We also talk about how building insurance changes are impacting condos, plus some maintenance and post-tension cable information was provided. If you're interested in Calgary condos, I think you'll get a lot of value from this show. Hey, Chris, I just want to welcome you back to the Calgary Estate Investing Podcast. I really enjoyed having you on the show in our previous show and uh, just really looking forward to this conversation with you about current condo market and, and some future maybe predictions or maybe just what your thoughts would be, what the condo market may look like in 2023 and also uh, looking back on 2022. Well, thanks for having me back. I, I enjoyed last time as well and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Awesome, man. So. I guess to start off, can we start off uh, with the Calgary market and just kind of recapping 2022? I know it's, you know, it's been, it was really hot and it cooled off, at least on the detached side. Uh, maybe if you wouldn't mind providing our listeners with how that's looked on the, in the condo market. So for the condo market last year, I, I probably wouldn't describe it as hot, but I would describe it as good product was selling that wasn't selling before. Days on the market was pretty much cut in half for, for what did sell. Average prices were up about 6 to 7% generally for the overall market. Now, there's some, some differences in, in that. Inner city, Beltline, downtown area was probably only up about 2%. So the suburbs definitely benefited more greatly last year in the condo market. What, so what did, what's the driver behind that? Why is the Beltline inner city... Values increase less. I think with newcomers, most of the demand being driven by people new to the city, um, they don't see our suburbs as that far out. They don't see it as as much of a commute to downtown if that's where they have to go. And the prices of what you could get in the suburbs versus what you could get downtown was quite a bit different. You could get a two bedroom, two full bathroom built in the last ten years for under two fifty at the beginning of last year in the suburbs. Whereas that would be tough to equal downtown. For sure. Do you, how important do you see some of these buyers, if they're younger, they're coming to Calgary to be closer to say some of the shops and restaurants. Like if that, that's obviously the appeal if you're in that Beltline more inner city is you could own a condo. Obviously you're getting less for your less condo for your money, but you can walk to some of these kind of trendier areas. I, I think uh, in the coming year, downtown is going to see sort of its uh, increase. I think it just had to do more with the type of people that were coming last year versus the type of people that are going to be coming this year. Most of the people coming last year uh, had established jobs, generally speaking. They were looking for, they had money. They sold something where they came from. And when they came there, they had a bit of money to buy. Whereas I think the, the people coming now are generally younger people more of downtown dwellers, more of nightlife, more people that want the nightlife type experience. They're generally renters or buyers, depending on what the price is. So price gets too high to rent. 
then they do have funds and they might choose to buy. Yeah, for sure. And then can you speak to some of the inventory changes that we've seen in 2022? Like we're say 10 months ago, inventory was obviously quite high for condos and where we're at uh, right now. Yeah, so just looking at the numbers. So at the beginning of last year, we started the year with about 400, 500 um, condos for sale, but demand was also really low at that time. And so uh, it equaled out to about four to six months of inventory. Right now, we're sitting at about 500, 560 condos currently for sale. That's apartment condos. And 578 currently for sale. Um, But demand is quite a bit stronger. And so we're sitting at about two and a half months of inventory, 2.3 months of inventory. So the inventory changed drastically over the year. But in... In combination with the rate increases for mortgage rates, uh, condos had a lot of trouble seeing that appreciating value. So as the rates went up, it put more and more pressure on condo values increasing. So while they did rise, without that rate increase, they would have rose significantly more. Just based on what people are paying today for condos and what that monthly payment looks like at the current rates, versus what that monthly payment might have looked like if the rates didn't change. So the rates are putting significant pressure on our ability to increase in value right now, specifically in condos, because most of your buyers are buying payments. They're not, they're looking at the total price, but the total price doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily the deciding factor. The deciding factor is their mortgage payment plus condo fees. And what does that equal out to? Yeah, for sure. And then for for days on market, can you kind of speak to how that's changed as well, what you were seeing in the market right now compared to yeah, six, nine months ago? So previously, yeah, it was about 80 to 90 days on market on average for condos to sell. And now it's about 44. So a significant change. The the days on market's been cut in half. And it's so during 2018, 2019 period. We were selling probably about 2,500 to 2,600 apartment condos a year. Last year, we sold 6,221 apartment condos. So almost a tripling of what we were doing in sort of the depths of the downturn. So demand has risen significantly. A lot of that's due to in-migration. We've had record in-migration in the third quarter of last year. I think it was about 20,000 people moving to Alberta from other provinces. And so that's done a lot to, to, uh, for condo sales. Yeah, definitely. And then can you also speak to, so like if you look at a condo, depends obviously the building, that kind of stuff, there's different factors that play into it. But there's, there's people out there that would have bought, say, in 2008 when, when condo values were very high, and then they might be looking to sell them right now. And if you look at the history, they might be forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 less right now that they're selling it for than what they paid for back in 08. And, and can you kind of speak to some of the, those factors that drove the price increases in 08? So in 08 was our high point, one of our high points in the real estate market. Started in 2006, we had massive in-migration from other provinces, similar to what we're having now. But in that instance, they were more coming for oil field jobs, oil sands expansion. Oil sands were expanding greatly at that time. And so 2006, 2007, we had record in-migration and uh, population growth. At the same time, you could get a mortgage with zero down and put it over 40 years. 
And so that significantly reduces your payments. And you don't have to save any money. All you have to do is have a good credit rating to qualify. So with zero down in 40-year amortizations, at a $200,000, $250,000 price, that lowers your payments significantly. And so, like I was saying before, a lot of these buyers aren't looking at the total price of the unit. What they're looking at is what it's going to cost them monthly. And so in the lending environment, 2006, 7, and 8, you could really get those payments really low. And just generally speaking in psychology, if I go into the bank and I say, I want to buy a house, what do I, have, what do I need? And they say, you don't need anything. Well, then maybe I'm making decisions that if you're going to give me the loan, I'm going to take it. That's, that's a common thing that happens out there. It was evidenced by the subprime rate crisis in the United States. People who could, had no ability to pay or maybe no intention of paying would take the money anyways, as long as you're giving it to me. So that was kind of the climate in 2006, 7, and 8. And then when the financial crisis happened, Canada, of course, tightened up its lending regulations uh, significantly. No longer could you go longer than 25 years on an amortization. And last year, we were putting more than 20% down. 0% down was eliminated. So you needed at least 5% down to get a mortgage. So all of those factors really changed what that monthly payment's going to end up being on a $250,000 condo. Yeah, it definitely does. So I find that quite interesting. And then would you, is that a bit of a sign? So if you're looking at inventory and you're looking at like some of the history, is that a bit of a sign that there's still really good value and still quite a bit upside? If, if you were to buy a condo 2023 in Calgary, is that kind of a bit of a, you know, a gauge that there's still a good upside, that it's still good value right now? I think 2014 or highs of 2014 is a better indicator, just because the lending environment was similar to what it is today. Of course, the rates were quite different, but the rules and regulations that, that affect who can get a mortgage and what, what that looks like were similar. And there is still many cases, especially in the inner city, where condos were selling for more in 2014 than they are today. And so in that sense, we've had people that were willing, happy and willing to pay more for this product than they are paying today. So in my mind, that means that there's room, there's still room to grow, there's still value in these condos as compared to what people have seen in the past. Yeah, this leads kind of quite nice into talking about 2023. Like I know nobody has a crystal ball and and nobody can predict the future perfectly. But you have you've been in touch, you've been involved with the condo market and you've been through different cycles. And, and, you know, so I guess I I would like to hear what you think 2023 is going to look like and just uh, some projections. So I think it's going to be good. I think we're going to see some increases in average price in the condo market. I think it's going to be active. There's going to be a lot of people looking. However, I'm not sure of how much the average price is going to rise and how much pressure there is going to be on that average price from rates um, as rates rise. And and there is prediction at the next meeting uh, from some that they are going to raise the prime rate one more time uh, before they stop. So, for example... A three hundred thousand dollar condo at today's a three hundred thousand dollar loan at today's rates would be about thirteen fifty a month thereabouts. At last year's rates, let's say one point nine, to get that thirteen fifty payment, you could borrow four hundred thousand. So, in the absence of any rate increases, the the average price in condos may have been up twenty five to thirty percent last year. 
in the absence of any of those rate increases. So that kind of makes up sort of what we've lost in the past. So we're running out of room to increase is what I'm saying. As, as the rates increase and those payments get higher, that's sort of eating up what we would normally see in the average price increase. Again, because payments are so important to the buyers of this product. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. And then, uh, so, so, so you, you, sorry, just to recap. So you're kind of projecting an active, fairly active condo market, but obviously we don't know. We know we know there's going to be another rate increase, but we have net migration, so we have a positive net migration, so that's going to help drive it, right? So I, I guess another factor that's going to affect it, and I was looking into these stats just the other day. The rental market is going to have a huge effect. A lot of the people coming from other provinces, in most cases, they choose to rent first. And then if, if renting, if the price of the rental starts to get too owner, too expensive, then they might look at buying instead. And so I was looking at the vacancy rate and our vacancy rate currently is about 4.9%, which historically over the last 30 years, we've only ever had eight years that were higher than that vacancy rate. And it's more closer to the normal vacancy rate that Calgary usually sees. So I wouldn't say that there's a lack of rentals available in our market, even though you might hear differently on the news. The only thing that's not included in that stat is personal rentals. So if I own one rental property, that wouldn't be included in that vacancy rate stat. It only includes owners that have four or more properties that they own. So it mostly includes large rental buildings. And over the last five years, we've built a number of large, large rental buildings that are offering good suites with good amenities for a good price. And so I think that's eaten up a lot of the demand that we might have seen from this high in migration. So that demand, we might see that in the condo market a year from now, two years from now. Of course, half of them are going to buy, but it's not as significant as it's been in years past because that rental stock is available. In years past, I think it was like 25 years since the last purpose-built rental building was built in, in Calgary. And so those previous booms, there was really no rental stock except for those old 80s buildings downtown, and nobody wanted to rent those. And so people were pushed into buying. Yeah, that's interesting how those other ex, those external factors uh, and then rental uh, occupancy rates affect the buyers as well, it's how it's all kind of correlated. Yeah, if we see that vacancy rate drop, say, let's say zero to 2% in, in that range, then I think you'll see significant demand on the condo side. Usually if the vacancy rate gets up around seven, 8%, that's when you start seeing incentives from landlords, first month free, that kind of thing. So, so Chris, I'm kind of curious about the pre-sale inventory. So if you bought a condo, say 12 months ago and, and the building was being built and, and now we're seeing some of those uh, properties, uh, you know, come on, basically be available. Do, do you think They've increased in value if, if a person were to just basically not want to move in and just put it on the market and sell it? So I, I don't know if we've seen enough of an average price increase or, or increase in value in condos that they are going to be able to sell them for more than they paid or significantly more than they paid. A lot of the increase in those pre-sale condos is sort of half-baked into the price. They know that you're not going to be able to possess this for a year or two out. They realize that most people will think the value is going to increase. And so they'll bake a bit of that into the price. So there's a premium there. There's also a bit of a premium on pre-sale condos for the fact 
like all new products, people are pay, willing to pay a little bit more for new because they're going to be the first ones to own it. Maybe they got to pick the colors. Maybe they got to pick exactly where the suite is. So they're willing to pay a little bit more in that. So I'm not sure if we've seen enough of an increase in condos uh, so far uh, for those people to be able to make money, especially if you include the fact that they'll have to pay commission on the sale. They might be even or close, but I'm not sure if they're going to be able to make money. Now, most of the buyers that I know that were looking for pre-sales over the last two years, they were investors and they were looking to rent these units. A lot of them were coming from Vancouver and Toronto where the average condo price is 800000 and it's tough to make any money. It's, it's tough to first come up with a down payment to buy it. And then even at that price, it's tough to make any money on the rental. And so a lot of them were pushed into our market and the majority of them were looking for pre-sales. They're looking for pre-sales with low down payments and uh, something where they can put their money and then they're going to rent it out when, once it once it possession comes up. Now, they were hoping for a large increase in average price and then they could flip it out as soon as possession comes available. But their secondary plan was always to rent it. And so they had that as, as sort of if prices hadn't increased to that extent. Now, without the rate increases, they probably would have had that. You probably would have seen these pre-sales increase a significant enough uh, value that they would be able to flip them out as soon as they were possessed. Sasso yeah. building, as an example of that, actually. So Sasso, Sasso and Vetro, which are downtown by Stampede Grounds, uh, they're twin towers there. There's also Allura and I can't remember the other name, the two black buildings uh, that are right beside them. So Sasso was pre-selling in 2004, 2005. And so that was before our first significant increase in 2006. So a lot of the buyers in that project paid 125000 to 175000 for their units. By the time the building was complete in 2006, most of these units were worth three to 400000 So essentially, 100%, not exactly 100%, but 90%, let's say, of the first buyers in the Sasso project resold their units when, when the building was possessed. All those people that bought those units at that 354, because we saw another increase in 2007, they all then sold their units too. So on that Sasso building, there was probably hundreds of people that made hundreds of thousands of dollars on that, just getting lucky on a pre-sale. Yeah, and we've seen that in other markets too, Vancouver, Toronto, that kind of thing, right? Where people have walked away with buying on a pre-sale, putting a low down deposit down and then selling it later. Yeah, and walking away with a couple hundred grand. You got it's it's all about the market though, and, and you can't control it as we've seen, right? So if if it's not appreciating, then that strategy is not gonna work. Yeah, you're making a bet and best to have a backup plan if that bet doesn't pay off. That's right. That's great. I it's like you said about these other people, like it's smart to have your your backup plan of hey I'll just turn it into a rental if if I don't see those those gains that I'm hoping for. Any uh, so for locations of condos, have you seen anything? Uh, I, I can think of some examples in the core where there's maybe some exterior outside influences that uh, make the building less appealing. So is there is there when you're working with your clients, uh, can you talk maybe to speak to that of some about location of the condo building and how important that can be? I find. For the most part, like Calgary is a, is a strange place when compared to other major cities that, that people may have visited or lived in. We don't have really any bad 
neighborhoods in Calgary, but we do have a lot of bad streets or blocks. And so in any given neighborhood, there's going to be maybe one or two streets that people tend to stay away from. But the rest of the neighborhood could be fabulous, could be uh, amazing, lots of amenities, all this great stuff. So it's very specific, I guess, to any given neighborhood. And then generally speaking, I have I try not to speak in terms of bad or good neighborhoods because I have clients that live in what people would consider a bad neighborhood or a bad area, and they love it. I tend to more speak in terms of the amount of attention your neighbors are going to pay to you and what you're doing. In a place like Forest Lawn, for example, nobody cares what you're doing in your backyard, and you don't care what they're doing in their backyard. That's, that's, people have decided that. Whereas, in, and this isn't a fact, but for example, in a place like Mount Royal, people may be concerned with the people walking down the street. If they don't look like they fit, maybe they're going to watch them closer and, and that sort of thing. If your lawn's not cut in Auburn Bay, your neighbor's going to say something, hey, uh, or they may cut your lawn. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's more. And so in that example, what I'm thinking of is, if I had a client who smoked marijuana and they wanted to live in a condo, we know that marijuana can be, um, a lot of people don't like the smell of marijuana. Some people don't care. And so in that instance, they may want to look for a building that, that's in an area that people are going to pay less attention to what their neighbor's doing or, or not care necessarily to what their neighbor's doing. So that's kind of the difference in, in that sense, because we have that, areas that people would consider bad, but they're full of people that love living there. And so it's more in that sense. So there is a building for everyone, I guess. Yeah, a building and a location. Exactly. 100%. Uh, Obviously, close to the river views. um, That's still mostly what people are looking for. Close to pathways, park pathways, that sort of thing. And views is, is usually pretty important in most apartment condos that I find. Yeah, and and a good a building with a great view in a maybe not so great street can still attract some pretty good money. Yeah, definitely. Any updates on Eau Claire? Like what's happening there? Are they going to gentrification that kind of stuff on the on the market? So there is a new building planned uh, for Eau Claire. Uh, it's right across from the Concord Building on Second, I believe. It's supposed to be completed, I believe, by. 2025 or 2026, Greywood Developments. Uh, it was formerly a, a low-income rental building uh, that the city owned and then tore down. And so it's been a vacant lot for quite some time. So they're now planning a building there. But I haven't seen... That's the only one so far uh, new in Eau Claire. We still haven't seen values increase. And I still think, I still think there's, there's a lot more people being brought to downtown. But you need that Eau Claire Mall. That Eau Claire Mall is the anchor for the neighborhood. And until that becomes something that people want to go to, not just have to go to, because it's the only place there, I don't think things will change there. It's still The area still offers a sweet size and caliber of luxury that's very difficult to find in the rest of the city. But at the prices that they're asking and the proximity to Hillhurst, Sunnyside area, Kensington, you have a lot of people choosing a home over a condo. Just there's just not enough amenity. If they're going to cross the river anyways, then why don't I just buy a home? Some of that that's is influencing a lot of the decision making. So yeah, it is still a place that offers extreme luxury, 
that is hard to equal in most of our other neighborhoods and buildings. But it is challenged in, in the sense that it doesn't offer a lot of amenities for, for people who live there. Yeah, it, it's definitely that market, Eau Claire Market shopping center that if they if they could update that and, and just make it more appealing for people. Because like I've been in there with my kids multiple times on, you know, we do bike trips downtown and you honestly go in and use the washroom and uh, maybe look at a couple of things and leave and you're good for the next two years kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's really no appeal to go in there. That's how yeah, I feel. And, and it, it it always was supposed to be something greater. I, I remember when they first built it and first redeveloped that whole area, and it just it just never turned out into what they had hoped. And, and I think part of that was due to the amount of population that was available downtown to to service uh, to attend the shops and, and things like that. They built a couple buildings and figured they could support them all. And they greatly underestimated the amount of population they'd need to keep stores open in a place like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And can you just speak to the process of of buying, how it differs when you have a client that's looking at buying a condo versus, say, a detached property? In my opinion, condos can be more complex. Uh, It's more of a complex process and more paperwork, that kind of thing. But could you just kind of share some of the differences? There's definitely a lot less paperwork. So in a condo, you're essentially investing in a business. Condo Corporation is a nonprofit business and they own this building. So buying a condo, you're essentially buying shares in this build business and, and your shares include this unit. So what you're really doing is investigating the health of the business and making a judgment on that. Whereas with a single family house, you're looking at the parts and pieces location, parts and pieces. That's by far the most important. It's solely up to you how this house is going to be run, maintenance and otherwise. Or as a condo, you're you're relying on volunteer boards mostly that generally don't some may have some some expertise in how to run a business, how to run a condo, construction, that sort of thing. But generally they're just volunteers who own units in the condo. And so they may not have any special expertise on how to run these things. But so that's the main difference is, is you're investing in a business. Yeah, that's and it's quite a difference for sure, right? Like in the two. Well, I lo- a condo is actually a form of ownership, not a style of construction. And so I think it's uh, in Elbow Valley, for example, there's detached homes that are condos. So you own the lot. But the, the entire plan is, is a condo corporation. And developers will do that with uh, detached homes, townhouses, just because there's different rules in the amount of green spaces required. So if I'm a developer and I'm going to develop a subdivision, there's rules around how much green space I have to provide, pathways, um, how much trees I have to leave, all of that stuff. If I change that subdivision into a condo development, then those, those rules change. I don't have to provide as much green space. I don't have to. So that kind of thing. Um, so that's why some developers will choose to do condos, even though they're building single family houses. And how do you view, so when you're looking at condos for your clients, and let's say you, there's one that's built in the 70s, condo fees aren't too bad, but but you, it's, not, it's not as big of a building. So it's maybe, let's say, a 12-unit building. And then you next to it is a maybe a 15-year-old building with... Uh, 300 units. And, and now if you as a buyer are going to buy, and, and let's say apples to apples, pretty similar, 
but would you consider it to be more risk to get into the old building with with less people to let's say if there was a special assessment that kind of thing that came up like is there any how how would you kind of view those scenarios and the differences so right now what we're seeing is so small buildings with a few units generally can be more expensive they have less people to split costs amongst and they're not not always have less stuff to to repair. A good example is a 14 unit building may have the same size roof made of the same materials as a 20 story building. 20 story building has 100 people to pay for it. 14 unit building only has 14 people, but it's the same roof that they got to repair. But the big significant difference that's happened, and in, in my opinion, is making low unit condos anything like less than 20 units. It's increasing the risk for those units, and it's a function of our current insurance regime. So currently, insurance rates, as everybody knows, are rising significantly. And what's happening with condos is, so condos have to have insurance on the condo. Corporation has to carry insurance for the condo. And so they're seeing significant rises. In some cases, a tripling what their insurance costs were three years ago. As an example, my building in 2019, we were paying 9,000 a year for insurance and our deductible, if anything happened, was $2,000. This year, our latest quote was 25,000 a year and the deductible is $25,000. So in a sense, we're uninsured. Uh, We've never had an issue in this building that costs more than $20,000 to repair. And so uh, from a from an insurance claim. And so in a sense, every time something happens that the building's responsible for that insurance would normally cover, we have to special assess. We have to special assess the owners because we can't, the deductible is 25,000. And so even if the, the problem, even if the, the damage is more than 25,000, we still have to come up with the 25,000 as a deductible. And so when I look at larger buildings, their insurance costs may be 50, 60,000, but again, they've got 60 people to pay for it or 100 people to pay for it. And so even though their deductible is also 15,000 or 25,000, when they put that over the, the people in the building, uh, it ends up being 50 bucks, 100 bucks, something like that. It's not significant. So it is something that they can handle in a building like that. Whereas in the smaller buildings, uh, I think it's going to be a big problem. I think it's going to generally make people shy away from smaller buildings. Whereas in the past, buildings with less than 20 units were generally great for people that wanted community. Usually everybody in a building like that knows each other. When things come up, they talk to each other as opposed to complain to the board and that kind of thing. So it's much more like living in a community than than a large apartment complex. And for people looking for condos who may not like that large apartment style complex, it was a good option. But in the current climate, it, it's becoming a significant risk. That's unbelievable. So your deductible went from two grand to 25 grand per, if you had to put a claim in. Correct. And and what, I know we've had big hailstorms. there's been the, is it is it driven by the some of this natural disaster stuff? Is that why insurance has done this? If you listen to the insurance companies, uh, they will say that they've been losing significant amounts of money um, in Alberta for years. 
the former government had a cap on insurance rates and a cap on how much they could increase per year. And so that kept them to a certain level. When the UCP was elected, they removed that cap. And so that's what we're seeing now is the effect of removing that cap. Now, the insurance companies will say that they need to do this because they're losing money and and they can't afford to insure otherwise. I don't know what the truth is. They were obviously operating here and insuring properties before the cap was removed. Um, there wasn't, you didn't see insurance companies uh, not willing to insure in Alberta. So I don't know what the truth is. Wow, that's interesting. So when, when the cap was in place, was it they were allowed to increase by a certain percent each year and then and that, and restricted by that amount? Is that how it worked? Yeah, and they had to justify that increase as well to the government. So if they wanted to increase a certain amount, in their rates, they had to go to the government and say, this is why. And then the government would decide if that was a valid reason or not. And if the increase that they wanted was appropriate. So much more control from the previous government on insurance companies. In this government, it's, it's more of a free market style government. Um, let the market decide. Unfortunately, like there was a building in Fort McMurray that I, I believe the owners all had to declare bankruptcy because they couldn't get insurance that they could afford. It was close to the, to that, and I'm sure forest fires and natural disasters had an effect on that. Um, it was close to a forested area. It was a three-story wood frame building. And I think their insurance, I, I can't remember the exact number, but they were getting quotes of like a couple million dollars a year for insurance. And so it was just, they, they couldn't get insurance for the building as a condo. You're required to cover to carry insurance. And so I think they had to go bankrupt. And, and most likely in that situation, a building like that would get turned into a rental. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. And do you see this, uh, because of this uh, change, do you see, like you, you mentioned some of the changes on the small buildings, but like I haven't really, for myself, I mean, has this made the news? Is it, is it kind of, are people kind of reaching out and, and kind of lobbying the government about it? Because this is, this is going to have a big impact on all the smaller buildings for sure. Yeah, you haven't really seen anything Really, that, that Fort Mac building was on the news, and that was about two or three years ago. Um, but that was the only one that I've seen, or, or the only talk I've seen on the news about this issue. And it's because it doesn't affect a lot of people. So it may not be getting the attention that it deserves. As, as a condo, dealing with condos all the time, I see this all the time. So I have a perspective. Whereas most owners might not have a perspective. They might not know what it was before and the changes that have happened. And so, yeah, the people that do see that we're busy working. And so it's hard to uh, lobby the government on these issues. But yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with it. it. It is a significant problem in my view. I just, I'm just about to list another condo as well. And they're a 14 unit building this year because of the insurance costs what they've done with their condo fee. So they set their, they, they decided they had to do a 20% increase in their operating budget. And so the way they decided to do that in the condo fee was they put a, did an 8% increase in the condo fee. And then they special assessed 12% of that value over three payments in the summer. So a unique way of doing it. Um, part of the reason they would do that is because if they needed 2000 extra from everybody for the operating costs, they need that kind of monthly because operating costs are being billed monthly. So they can't be short on any given month. And so they'd have to plan that this money would be there at the times that these bills would be due. 
versus the other choice is that they could have special assessed it all at once, but they probably needed in their bank account by March or something like that. And so to special assess everybody 2000, maybe not everybody can come up with it that quickly. And so instead they did it over three payments in the summer. So a 20% increase in operating costs solely due to insurance. Yeah, that's, that's insane. Now, I don't, I don't understand this. You, I'm sure you could speak to it, but how do, how, if you're an insurer, how are they evaluating each building and, and kind of setting their rates? And like what factors do you see uh, play into that? Like is it, if it's a concrete building, say, versus a wood construction, is there different things like that? I think it's more to do with the history of claims. If the building's had a recent claim, then that's really going to affect what their insurance rates are. And some may not even insure it. I haven't. I don't really know much more about it than that, but I do know that recent claims will will significantly affect. We've tried in our building not to make insurance claims, um, just for that reason, and just knowing that the deductible is so high, we've managed so far to take care of everything ourselves. But this year, I believe we're probably going to have to do a special assessment for some of the operating costs to do with repairs. It's really unfortunate how how the the system is though where where you pay you're paying the insurance but then you do everything in your power not to make a claim because your insurance will go up and you know it's just yes. a really uh, unfortunate way. Maybe you should do a podcast with the insurance guy. Yeah, I, I really mm-hmm. should. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Can you talk about post tension cables in Calgary and uh, maybe just some of the risks uh, for buyers and and you know even financing that kind of thing. Yeah. So post-tension cables, there was a style of construction for high-rise buildings. I'm not sure the exact date when they disallowed it, but it's no longer uh, legal to build a building like that in in Alberta. And post-tension cables, what it would be is is cables running through the floor, floor plates of the building, connecting each side of the building. And there were steel cables. So what they found is over time, without proper inspection and maintenance, these cables would deteriorate and be unfixable. And so if enough of the cables deteriorated, then the building would essentially fall apart. It would be unsafe to occupy and it'd have to be torn down. Great example of this, I don't know if all of your listeners know Calgary that well, but Kensington, there was a building called Kensington Manor. It's recently been in the news um, because the contractor that did some of the work there is out like $280,000 for some of the work he did for the owner. But that building was built with post-tension cables and it was a rental building. And the owner of the rental building uh, wasn't maintaining the cables like he should. And it was discovered uh, a number of years ago that uh, the building was having some structural problems. And so the city went in and investigated. They discovered that it couldn't be repaired because the post-tension cable system was damaged beyond repair. And so the building's been torn down. And so that's the extreme example of post-tension cables. Now, as buyers in a condo building, condo legislation requires buildings with post-tension cables to inspect and maintain those cables, get a professional inspection every two years. So all condo buildings should have a regularly scheduled inspection and maintenance in place for post-tension cables. So they should never fall apart. Um, People don't need to worry about these buildings falling apart. But for mortgages, uh, building with post-tension cables, as far as I know, CMHC will not insure a mortgage on a building with post-tension cables. So therefore, you're going to need at least 20% down to buy in a building like that. 
There are other insurers that may insure. I'm not sure if Genworth will insure or not. But uh, for mortgage insurance, it is tougher to get mortgage insurance um, when you're dealing with a post-tension cable building. And the most important thing for buyers, even if they're still going to consider a post-tension cable building, is to look at those uh, inspection reports to make sure that they've been done every two years. You can usually get the last two inspection reports and to take a look and make sure that they've been doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then uh, generally speaking, like, so if you own one, the value is probably, uh, to buy one is probably a better value, right? If it has post-engine cable, it's going to be slightly less than, uh, it's going to be sold at a lower price because of that, I, I would think, right? Well, there's, yeah, there's less buyers. And so supply and demand, less buyers. The buyers may want to, but if they don't have 20% down, then that may prevent them from buying. And so it's a significantly less amount of people that have 20% down to put on a condo, generally speaking, than, than have 5 or 10 or 15% and will need that mortgage insurance. So as, as it shrinks your buyer pool, then it can shrink your price. For sure. Yeah. Okay. Last question. And I'm just going to put you on the spot for uh, prediction for 2023. You, you did say at the beginning of the podcast, I think we went up six to 7% in the suburbs and say 2% inner city on values, right? Uh, 2022. Any, uh, what would be, we're nobody's going to hold you to this. I know it's just, <laughs> you don't have a crystal ball, but what would you say by the end of 2023? What do you think? Uh, percentage-wise, the difference would be? So there's a significant amount of factors that are influencing uh, what can happen in the condo market this year. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to be up in sales in terms of number of sales for the year. I think we're going to be higher than we were last year. In terms of average price, I think we'll probably see around 4 or 5% increase. Now, in the spring market, you could see as high as 10. It all depends on what the demand versus the inventory is going to be. And so the scenario of which a great condo gets listed, there's four people interested, and one of them has money and doesn't want to look anymore. This is the one he wants. And so he pays over list price, which then can set a new price. If, if the demand is high, and the inventory stays low, then we could easily see 10% over that spring market that will then probably get erased through the balance of the year, like what happened last year with detached homes. I do see that inventory is going to be low. I do think that demand is going to be high. The reason the rates are going to be such a concern is I think you'll have people out there that want to pay more for a lot of these places but can't. They're not getting approved. And so we're going to be limited by those rates. If, if we're seeing rates around 5.2%, you add in the condo fee, um, mortgage rates, it is going to be tough for a lot of people to pay more. So in, in the excitement of the spring market, the spring is usually where people have time limits. Um, I need a place by this time or I'm out of my rental by this time, or I've just sold my place and I'm out of there. So the spring market is much more a time when people have time limits and, and they have to make a decision. So you could see increases there, but um, yeah, the rates are gonna be a significant risk factor. Now, further to that, I think that within 12 to 18 months from now, you might see a rate decrease. 
And then six months after that, you might see a small rate increase. So I think once we get to the level where we're going to be, then they're just going to float around that, that range. I don't think we're going to see 2%, 1.5% rates um, over the next 10, 20 years, unless something significant happens. I think that was a, a sort of a rarity that uh, nobody wants to go back to, at least in, in government. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thanks, Chris. I really enjoy having you on the show. You definitely are a Calgary condo expert. And you, every time you know I talk to you, I learn something. So our listeners that, that might be interested in uh, buying a condo in Calgary, how, what's the best way for them to uh, reach out and get a hold of you? So the best way by far is uh, by email. That way you can send me a message, a complete message, and then I can be prepared when I respond so that, so that I can respond with some value. I am available by phone. Uh, I do have a direct line. That's 403-589-9850. I don't often answer calls I don't know. As a realtor, we get 50 calls a day from people trying to sell us stuff. And so if you do call me, either text or leave a message. But by far, the best way is uh, to start our conversation is through email. And that's uh, C-F-E-N-E-M-O-R-E at C-I-R realtors realty.ca okay awesome and there'll be there'll be a link also in the show notes as well so hey happy new year and thanks again for being on the show happy new year to you too Corey. thanks for having me thank you hey thanks again for listening to the calgary real estate investing podcast i'm your host Corey peckford i'm an investment focused real estate agent in calgary alberta i'm also an entrepreneur red seal electrician and i hold a master home inspection certification if you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at Peckford Corey, or my website is coreypeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.